welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that's willing to go where other Buddhist podcasts fear to tread. Coming to you from Trieste, Italy and Bath, England, each episode we discuss topical issues concerning Western Buddhism with a bit of banter and occasional guests. You can join in the fun at our dedicated Facebook page and Twitter feed. Download episodes from SoundCloud and MixCloud. Okay, so welcome ladies and gentlemen to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Today we have Sean Bartone with us. Um, let's, let's jump straight in, Sean. Um, how did you get involved in uh, activism and Buddhism? And why did you get involved in both? Can you tell us something about that? Yeah, I started in activism, uh, something I've been doing since I was a teenager. Um, I was definitely involved in the feminist movement, working with the poor. Um, at the time, I was a devout Catholic, and that was a time when Roman Catholicism was very progressive. It was all about advocacy for, for immigrants and poor people and liberation theology. So I, that's what I learned as a Catholic. And so I, I grew up with a feeling that there was some kind of connection between you know, spirituality and social justice. So I continued, I pursued that basically for the rest of my life. I studied sociology in college, and then I got an MSW, Master of Social Work, and I was a social worker for many years, and I was mostly focused on urban issues, uh, community organizing, housing, human rights, and a bunch of of social justice issues, and in the field of active uh, campaigns, as well as policy and research. So, and then later on, I was began to focus on environmental issues, um, especially climate change. So that's been my major focus for the last 10 years. When I made my body Vow in 2014, I felt that that was just a, a continuation of the life that I had been living as an activist and only now it was in the form of engaged Buddhism. And then, of course, I had a long sort of spiritual journey of I left the Catholic Church in my early 20s when I came out as gay and transgendered and was looking for many years for a spirituality that really worked for me. And I got into our pagan practice with the radical fairies, which was kind of fun, but wasn't really the kind of substance I was looking for. I tried manifestation, I tried TM and yoga, but nothing really worked. It just didn't really click with me. I guess into my thesis, I had investigated Buddhism, but actually I really didn't like Buddhism <laughs> very much. I was a, basically a punk rocker and a radical activist, and it was just seemed too boring and passive. I tried Vipassana meditation, but it, it just didn't work. Yeah, in 2008, I moved to Canada, <clears throat> to New Brunswick, and um, the move was very stressful for me, and I felt like I needed extra support. So I thought, well, maybe I'll learn how to meditate. So I went to um, the Shambhala Center in Fredericton, New Brunswick. The Shambhala meditation really worked for me. It, I think it was like the eyes open method, and that they taught, it was a very loose kind of style. They just taught me to just sit and watch my mind, to just accept whatever was there without judgment, and so forth. And that, that really worked for me. So uh, for four years, basically, I, all I did was meditation. I was working on my dissertation. I was working on my, on, my, on my doctorate degree, so I didn't really have time to do a lot of retreats or studying or anything. It's just meditation. So I've been teaching as part-time faculty for several years and wanted to go into teach full-time. So in 2013, I got a job teaching at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is where I live right now. I live in Halifax. I spent a year doing intensive training with Shambhala, and then I just decided it didn't work for me. So then I switched to the land of Bodhi, which is a, another Tibetan uh, form, Dzogchen. 
uh, so I could study Buddhism. But again, I found the whole Tibetan approach to Buddhism just didn't work for me. Um, it was too insular, too escapist, too disengaged. It very much uh, reflected a white upper class worldview. So it just that, that didn't work for me either. So from there, I joined a Theravada community in Halifax, and they had just sort of gotten started with their own resident monk and a new, they just built their own new temple. This community is like 90% immigrants from Sri Lanka. So I'm getting a form of Theravada that's like Eastern influenced, you know, from Sri Lanka rather than Western, which is like Insight Meditation Society. And I really, really like the Sri Lanka approach to Theravada. Okay, so how do you how do you fit into this community? They've been very accepting of me, even though I'm obviously very queer and visibly so. <laughs> uh, but they're they're very progressive. You know, the Sri Lankans are actually very progressive. It's interesting because Sri Lanka is the site of not only the oldest Buddhist tradition in the world, but also one of the newest, which is Buddhist modernism. They just take a modernist approach to Buddhism that it should be adapted to today, to today's conditions. Many of the people that I've been befriended in the community are scientists and professors, but you know, many of them are just like regular working class people too, and they're immigrants, right? But uh, so they just have a very progressive view of Buddhism, and that really works for me. Interesting that you should find that in a Sri Lankan community. Buddhist modernism started in Sri Lanka like 100 years ago. So it has already has this kind of its own lineage. In fact, uh, Anagarika Dhammapala was one of the Sri Lankan Buddhists who really started modernism. I think we have to embrace it. I think there's been this kind of tendency to try to reject modernism as not original or authentic. And I just don't see that at all. The Sri Lankans, really, even though they have a very traditional practice, we chant in Pali. That's the main practice. The main practice is not insight meditation. It's actually metta bahavana. So in that sense, it's a traditional Sri Lankan community, but they just also have very progressive uh, worldview. Let's talk about the positives and the negatives of Western Buddhism and this experience you're having now. What have you found most positive about Buddhism in the West and Western Buddhists? In terms of engaged Buddhism, like some of my greatest inspiration are Joanna Macy, the ecologist, uh, Sulak Sivaraksa, who is a social scientist, and especially Dr. Bimrao Ambedkar, uh, the, the lawyer from India. Uh, they're all Theravadan, and they're also lay practitioners. And I guess Dr. Ambedkar is my greatest inspiration. I started the Ambedkar Society of Halifax, which is a, a local organization dedicated to engage Buddhism. So those have been a great inspiration for me, the work that I'm doing. I'm also inspired by the Zen teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh, David Loy. And I'm also very inspired by the 17th Karmapa, who's about the only Tibetan really look to for that type of thing. Um, he's becoming a leader in the field of engaged Buddhism. And his book, um, The Heart is Noble, is a real uh, inspiration to me as an engaged Buddhist. So, um, And there's also certain groups or movements. You know, I tend to see Buddhism in terms of movements really more so than individual people, which includes um, Buddhist Peace Fellowship, which is the probably the best organization in North America for engaged Buddhism. I was recently just selected to be on the board of directors of Buddhist Peace Fellowship. I just found out on New Year's Eve, actually. So I just want to say that whatever opinions I have express are my own and don't reflect necessarily reflect the views of Buddhist Peace Fellowship. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm working with them now. I'm inspired by the Sarvadaya movement of Sri Lanka and Burma, which I learned about through Joanna Macy. It's a model of combining Buddhist education, community development and peace work, and it's very, very effective. Sulak Sivaraksa has been a champion of that kind of community, a Buddhist kind of community development, uh, very comprehensive and looking at all the issues that, and how they're connected. I'm definitely connected with Tri Ratna in the UK. There is no Tri Ratna here in, in Halifax. 
that's why the Sri Lanka community is like important to me because they're like my on the ground face to face community. I'm starting with Triratna. I think their community model is very innovative. They're very activist. I'm involved with Triratna's um, Gender Diverse Buddhists, which is a group of about 200 transgender or gender non-conforming Buddhists. So that's very important to me. So in a sense, I kind of have two communities I'm working with. One is the Sri Lanka community, and the other one is Triratna. And I, I, like I said, I'm an unapologetic modernist. Engaged Buddhism is a modernist movement. It didn't exist at the time of the Buddha. It's a product of the globalization of Buddhism. Most of the engaged Buddhism today is a form of modernism. So you're just accepting that and you're making it explicit and including it in your relationship with Buddhism as a practice and sort of community existence. Yeah. What about the negatives? So what is it that you're, you're less happy with about Western Buddhism in particular? I've written about this in my blog a lot, is what I call neoliberal Buddhism. It's Buddhism that's it's classist, it's racist, it's hypocritical, it's self-serving. It works like a drug to kind of numb people and sort of help people, I think. It, it provides a way for people to escape reality instead of face it. Um, many of the Buddhist sanghas that I've encountered in eastern U.S. and Canada are overwhelmingly white and upper class. My experience is that it's Buddhism for the rich. They exclude a lot of people, people of color, without even realizing it. And when they get confronted about the racism, they don't want to deal with it. It's not so bad about gay people and about women, but... Basically, they just cater to the rich and they don't care if you don't have the money to, for their, their programs. They, that this becomes like a barrier to keep out people that don't fit into their kind of upper class worldview. So that's, that's been the most disappointing thing. You know, I, I really pursued Buddhism as a way to help face reality. I think that's what it should do. Most of the time it's, it's an opposite. It, it's, it becomes an escape from reality. So when you talk about racism, is this explicit? Is there some sort of evident approach to, I don't know, other races where they're not allowed to participate? Or do you think it's just a sort of unconscious bias that's been incorporated into the sort of the social dynamic of these groups? It's, it's not explicitly racist, but, you know, you have to ask yourself the question, why do people of color never, why are they never here in these sanghas? There's a way that, first of all, cost is a factor. Secondly, when people of color do show up at uh, a sangha, there was one, a Theravada nun who talked about this. She's a black, she's an African-American woman. I can't remember her name right now. She talked about how when she was going to a sangha, she was welcomed and she felt okay about that and that she felt like that she could be accepted there. It was okay, even though they were all white. And then she started bringing her black friends and they started showing up like as a group. And then she suddenly got told that, well, maybe you should stay home and listen to tapes. Like she was actually directed to just not back anymore. Okay. So there were too many, too many people of color in one shot. So it's just an unconsciousness is that, you know, there, there are forms of Buddhism that are attractive to sort of people of color and forms that aren't. And it's just the way that people behave in a Sangha in a way that's very cold and rigid and silent, not engaging, not that kind of thing can make people feel really just anybody feel like, well, I'm not really sure if I'm welcome here, you know, so it's more unconscious. Do you think this is a feature of perhaps American or Canadian society as well? I, I would agree with you that Sangas do tend to attract mainly middle class white folks. And that's certainly been the case in the different uh, Buddhist groups that I've been through both in the UK and Italy. And I don't know, in, in Italy, it's probably less of an issue because it's it's a fairly dominant white culture here. There's less multiculturalism. But in the UK, yeah, you're right. It's a bit of an issue. But I wonder to what degree it is some sort of unconscious pattern of, of us and them or, or something else. So you talked about Triratna anyway, and you mentioned that they have a pro-positive to, approach to the LGBT community. How long has that been going on for? Yeah. I don't know that much about the history of Triratna. Just 
only as much as anybody who looks on the web. Okay, so um, but it seems to go back a long way, several decades. But the problem was that Sri Ratna, from the beginning, Sangat actually set up the community in the UK to have a women's wing and a men's wing. And actually, this is kind of patterned after the Indian form. Okay, anyway, for whatever reason, they decided to separate men and women. So there's always been these kind of like split between men and women. And then in recent years, as transgender people started coming out within these groups, they felt like they just didn't fit in either one of these kind of group. We got together as a Facebook group and we now have about 200 people and we're going to start to have transgender retreats and transgender studies for transgender people, Buddhist studies, and hopefully hopefully to ordain Buddhist teachers who are transgender, which I think is really cool. This might seem an ob- obvious question to some people, but as you're well aware, it's, it's not as obvious perhaps as it should be. Why is engaged Buddhism or engaged activism important? Well, I have several answers for that. First of all, I've read David Loy said that we should get involved with social justice issues, not because we're Buddhists, but because we're human beings. Also, I'd like to say with regard to that, that my approach to Buddhist scripture, like people are like, they're trying to look through Buddhist scripture to find some sort of scriptural justification for Buddhist activism. And, oh, it's not there. There's nothing, you know, the Buddha never said that nuclear weapons are bad, you know, or the Buddha never said that, you know, we should do something about this or that issue. Well, it doesn't matter. I think that we don't have to go to scripture to find passages to justify everything we do in terms of social justice. I think that's a, a terrible way to use scripture. I think it's like a kind of Buddhist fundamentalism. The last thing we need to do is turn into a bunch of Bible-thumping Buddhists who have to find a scripture passage for every issue we encounter. My view is that we should just read the scripture, internalize it, practice, meditate, personally and then go out and face the world and face the world as it is and find solutions for yourself and collective solutions with other people. You know, use the knowledge you've gained from education, from your life to figure out how to meet people's needs. And another approach I take is from example, Dr. Embedkar. He spent his whole life working for social justice. He was a, um, he was an, he was born in untouchable in India. He was active in India in 1930 to 1950. And has worked his whole life to end the caste system in India. He worked for to liberate the untouchables and women and the laboring classes. He became India's first minister of, minister of law in the post-colonial period. And he also wrote the Indian constitution, the democratic constitution. He worked tirelessly to uplift uh, untouchables and the poor and women. And when he finally converted to Buddhism in 1956, Half a million people converted to Buddhism with him. The period following his conversions, there were mass conversions in central India. There were so many people converting to Buddhism that the Hindus tried to pass a law to stop the conversions. Today, there are about 10 million Buddhists in India, and 90% of them are followers of Ambedkar. So I think it just shows that if you work for justice and you convince pe- you can convince people that Buddhism is a practice of compassion that really does relieve suffering and liberate people. That's the kind of Buddhism that people can believe in. But without that kind of real world social action, you know, Buddhism becomes Buddhism becomes just a kind of self-centered hypocrisy, concerned with relieving your own pain, but not really doing much to help others. And people who, even like me, see that kind of hypocrisy, it just turns them off. They don't see a Buddhism that's compassionate. They see a Buddhism that's self-serving and they just reject that kind of Buddhism. So I think that, you know, if we're really ser- serious about reaching the masses with a Buddha Dharma, that we need to seriously consider Dr. Ambedkar's example, because he's proven that if you, if you really take up the issue of social justice and make that cornerstone of your practice, not just, not just something you add on, but an integral part of what you do, you may actually end up converting hundreds of thousands, even millions of people.
Where do you think a, a modern Western Buddhist who's, you know, finally perhaps waking up to this reality that you're discussing and the possibility of actually doing something real in the world to reduce some form of, you know, suffering or ignorance? Where do you think they should start? Because often, you know, people look around, they see so many problems. It's often so overwhelming that it's difficult sometimes to know where to start or what to focus on. And I think another point there as well is education. It's all well and good, you know, having a, a sort of good-natured, you know, positive intention and desire to actually do something and contribute to making the world a better place. But often, you know, people can go around and end up perhaps just realigning themselves with a new, I don't know, perhaps abstract left-wing, extreme left-wing ideology that is itself problematic and end up, you know, not necessarily fueling the other side of the equation, which is reducing ignorance, not just suffering. Uh, you know, if, if you had a, you had a Buddhist come up to you and they say, you know, Sean, I don't quite know what to do. Where should I start? What would you say? First of all, I'd, I'd say you do have to start with yourself. Okay. You have to start with your own liberation. You, you have to understand how liberation works for you in order to understand how it works for other people. The, the two are not unrelated. You have to do both kinds of work. You have to work on yourself and you have to work on collective issues as well. I think that you should be, so I begin with yourself and begin also with the issues that are most important to you. We have to understand not only how issues are connected, but we have to, we have to understand how issues are connected. So I would say just get out of the Buddhist bubble, expose yourself to the issues of the day, read stuff on racism and sexism and other forms of oppression, because undoing your own racism and sexism is itself a form of awakening. It's also personal and collective. Yeah, read at least one book every year that really pushes you beyond your comfort zone. Get together with other people who are taking challenge and create support for what you're doing. Okay, so discuss the issues. You know, develop the language and the facility with the issues so you feel that you're some, some confidence. In other words, overcome the ignorance, right? And then challenge racism when you see it. You know, get involved in, in larger collective movements that are really effective at dealing with these issues. If you just stick with Buddhists, you're probably not going to encounter the kind of people and the kind of work that really makes a difference for the environment or for climate change or people of color or poor people and so on. You need to actually get involved in movements that are already doing that because they have the expertise. You can really inform yourself and get the kind of training you need to be involved with those those kind of uh, projects. And you get a lot of support because this is difficult work. So you need to be supported when you're doing this. You were talking there about people getting engaged and people getting involved, not just in Buddhist circles, but in wider circles of activism, whether it be political or social or environmental. And you mentioned both uh, racism and sexism, and you briefly mentioned the environment, which to my mind, although obviously racism and sexism are key social issues, it seems to me that perhaps environmentalism, environmentalism or the environmental disaster we're facing is really the big, big elephant in the room that doesn't tend to get discussed you know, sufficiently in Buddhist circles. And that's where I certainly get, get motivated to want to, to do something and, and feel that Buddhists perhaps could do a little bit more. In fact, I think that um, Buddhism is really poised to be probably the leader, possibly the thought leaders. Buddhist actors are poised to be the thought leaders in the field of environment and climate change uh, because of certain aspects of the Dharma that actually lend themselves to seeing connectedness. And um, so I kind of like to kind of go over that. My sort of big awakening really came from Reading Joanna Macy's work, uh, Mutual Causality in Buddhism and General Systems Theory, she talked about Pratichasamutpada or Pratikasamutpada in Pali. 
basically by reading her book, I am really understood that we are all connected, that I'm connected to everything and everybody. I'm connected to the whole biosphere. It gives me the sense of that not only am I connected, but I'm also responsible, that what I do has impacts way beyond myself as an individual. In fact, the interesting thing about climate change is it's an interesting kind of ethical problem because it's about future generations, right? So it's about that the actions that we take now or how we live our lives now has an impact not so much on our lives, but on future generations and other species, you know, you know, in terms of developing a sense of ethics or responsibility, it's, it's one of almost pure compassion or pure ethics. Because like, if I'm going to have an impact on, if I'm going to reduce my personal impact on CO2 emissions, right? I have to do certain things that actually inconvenience me, like not drive a car, don't fly, don't eat meat, try to live locally, try to get out of this consumer mindset. So I'm actually doing things that are not personally beneficial to me. In fact, they're a cost to me, right? In order that some future person might have a, a livable biosphere, Okay, so in the sense that that I don't personally gain from this, okay, it doesn't make my life better. It actually makes my life harder, but the benefit is to future generations. So, and I think that that becomes an interesting ethical problem. And and, and I think that one of the ways that Buddha Dharma really helps with that is the uh, Mahayana ethic of compassion that we are, you know, this is not just about me, this is about everybody. Um, having compassion for all beings, including animals and all species on, on the planet, but also karma and rebirth. And, and I've really taken a view of reinterpreting uh, the Dharma of karma and rebirth or saying that, you know, Joanna Macy said in, during an Echo Sakpa training that what is it about you that live on in future lives and future generations? She said, it's your actions. It's the decisions and the choices you make and the actions you take. And those decisions, those actions have ripple effects that carry on at spaces and times very distant from you and that carry on for generations after you. That's what lives on of you after you die. The effects, the the, the knock-on or ripple effects of the actions that you take will live on after you die. That, I think, is how we interpret karma and rebirth for our age. And of course, the the principle of of dependent origination, everything, we're all linked in this great web of cause and effect. There's an unbroken chain of connection from past generations to ours, and also from our generation to future generations. We're responsible for those future generations. That's where I think the Buddhist cosmological worldview really prepares us to be the leaders in the field of climate justice. I think Buddhism is still often beset by certain sort of new age principles. And there's a tendency for people often to take an idea such as interdependence and romanticize it even towards the environment. I think that's one obstacle. I think the other one as well is when I hear a word like compassion, which is obviously a buzzword in Buddhism, it kind of feels like it's this projection out sometimes of pity or a certain separation. Because to me, when you talk about being involved in a web, there's a very organic environmental metaphor, which which makes more sense to me. But at that point, what I'm thinking is the problem is not necessarily compassion, but it's empathy. 
And it's often this this inability of people, especially in the privileged classes, this inability to bridge the gap between a slightly superior or detached view, which again is a very common idea in Buddhism, to one where you are descending into the dirt in a sense, or the mud of, or the, you know, the uncomfortable, dirty, difficult mess that's around us and empathizing with that. I wonder what the approach is, you know, what, how, how, could meditation, in a sense, or some sort of engagement with what's real, help people to overcome that sort of aloof detachment and actually find uh, a more empathic engagement rather than just an aloof, compassionate engagement? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. My experience of meditation is it's quite profound. I mean, yes, it can have this kind of calming kind of soothing effect or a sedative kind of effect for people. And that's okay. That that works too. But actually, I found that that's kind of an initial stage of meditation. Because once you get beyond that initial stage, I find just the opposite effect happening. Uh, and I've discussed this with other meditators and teachers of meditation, and they've confirmed this for me, that actually meditation makes you more sensitive. It actually makes you, it makes your experience of life even more intense. So you're experiencing life daily life even in a more intense way in fact for some people it gets too intense and they tend to you know retreat into retreats or uh, sometimes even people will find after they start meditating will retreat into drugs and alcohol because they can't handle the intensity of it because it really does open up all your senses in a very profound way to your experience it opens you up to your own internal experience and your experience of the world so i find just the opposite in fact i found that meditation two things that really helped me to develop everything. One was reading literature like Joanna Macy's book or David Loy's work, Sulak Sivaraksar and all these other Buddhist uh, teachers, but also meditation itself. Because I found that the more I meditated, the more I felt that sense of connection and the more intensely I felt it. The other thing too is understand Pratichya Samuppada or interdependence. This affects me and everyone else. But then the climate change is its own issue. It's like you really have to come to terms with climate change. You have to study the science. You have to understand any number of issues, you know, hunger, starvation, migration, uh, impacts, um, polluting the, the soil and the earth and, and the atmosphere. You have to understand all these impacts and realize that it really is that serious and that your own life is in this, too. Interdependence says that it's not just I'm feeling compassionate for you out there in this kind of detached way, but it's that we're all in this together and what affects you affects me. Climate change is almost like the perfect scenario for understanding interdependence and not only as a concept, but as a really felt and lived experience. Okay, so what we've seen, Sean, is we've seen uh, some criticism of the adoption of mindfulness by corporations and banks and even the U.S. Uh, military and so forth. We've seen it used in order to make employees more uh, productive, uh, to make, in a sense, possibly people more pacified. Do you think it's possible that such practices could be usefully employed to make activists more robust and more objective in their ideological identification. So they're more, let's say, you know, capable of engaging objectively in their practices without burning out. Yeah, well, burnout, of course, is a major issue. Um, definitely meditation is one of the ways that you take care of your soul when you're doing this kind of work. You need to take care of yourself. And you need to understand, too, that how your own liberation works is a model for how it works for other people. I do think that, that meditation can be it, it's it's a means of awakening, but I think it also depends how you define meditation. I think the problem with, with Buddhism in the West I see today is that meditation has taken on a too narrow definition. And the definition of meditation now is silent, solitary meditation 
using some kind of like watching your mind technique or vipassana technique that that's the narrow definition of what meditation is and i don't i don't have that narrow definition i think there's a lot of things that function like meditation or that are meditation for instance, I think chanting is meditation. I think reading and studying and, and being absorbed into the analysis of a book or uh, whether it's a Buddhist or any other thing that you're studying is a process of meditation as well. Psychoanalysis and other kinds of self-reflection can be a form of meditation. I think we need to expand our definition of what meditation is. There are more kinds of meditation that can help us to, to actually like, to overcome ignorance, right? To, to overcome our lack of knowledge about climate change or social justice issues that you know that's that's a process of reflection there is actually actually in the land of bodhi does teach a a tradition of meditation that's called analytic meditation where you take a scripture passage from any buddhist text or you a teaching or even a video teaching or a lecture you listen to and you take what you've learned in that that teaching and you reflect on it, you meditate on it, you analyze it, you apply it to your life, you think about how this, you think about the implications of it. That's called analytic meditation. That's also a very valuable tool for expanding your mind, awakening for liberation and for overcoming ignorance. Yeah, I was just thinking more about, you know, mindfulness because it's it's still on the up. Collectively, people are still looking towards it and it's still being sold in a sense as a as a service that kind of fit as a one sort of cure, fit all solution to, you know, many of our modern ills. But yeah, you're right. Certainly, if we were to expand our definition of meditation and, and possibly even look for it, um, you know, more collective experimental forms of uh, meditation where people perhaps reflect on environmental situations, which is something we discussed in the last episode. I'd like to see more of that. Yeah. And I, I was going to say, too, it's like there's, there's a way that, like, for instance, doing anti-oppression work is a kind of mindfulness, right? You really have to be mindful of the ways in which you unconsciously act out racism and sexism. You're not even aware that you're doing it, but once you become mindful of it, then you start paying attention to your thought patterns, your speech patterns, your behavior patterns, and you start seeing things that you didn't see before. That's mindfulness also. In fact, it's interesting because in this uh, Sri Lanka community that I'm in, I'm very, even though I'm basically like one of two or three white people in the whole Sangha, all the rest are Sri Lankans, I'm very aware that I have white privilege. And in fact, being in that saying it actually makes me aware of that. And I have to be very mindful of how I behave and how I act and how I say things that I don't take up space away from other people in the saying it because I'm white, uh, because I do have white privilege. I have to be very mindful of how I'm thinking and acting and interacting with people not to uh, to be mindful of the white privilege that I do have. All right, so that's a mindfulness practice too. There's a way that uh, this, all this kind of anti-oppression work is a very mindful practice. It takes that kind of reflective analysis. Joanna Macy is a great one for teaching people to, and many other environmental environmental uh, Buddhists, or you know, go out into nature and feel nature. You know, actually get down to an emotional and intuitive level with it, and feel for it, you know, feel the sadness for the destruction of the environment, for the, the harm done to people and animals, you know, allow yourself to feel that stuff. Joanna Mace is always talking about allow yourself to feel that connection. Don't run away from the pain and the sadness that comes from and the fear and the terror that comes from realizing what we've done to this planet and how the difficult, the, the difficult situation that we put ourselves in the sense of despair, but don't live in despair. You know, I mean, go through it, allow it to happen, but then, you know, begin to take some kind of collective action that can actually help to stop or reverse some of this process. 
So that brings us back to this topic of uh, empathy and this, you know, engaging viscerally in these experiences. One thought came up when you were describing your experience in this Sangha. You know, I'm a bit concerned about this idea, though, with an excessive focus on social justice. Can't it sort of be slightly problematic? It sounded like you were describing almost a form of hyper-control, where you're monitoring your behavior very carefully in order to make sure that this, you know, this invisible uh, oppression doesn't come up. I wonder also how that fits in with this idea of a lack of, you know, an inherent self or a true self. You know, I don't want to go too far off topic, and this is probably actually just my own curiosity as I'm speaking to you. Um, I've actually um, had relationships, or friendships, I should say, with other transsexuals I've actually met in the Buddhist world relatively early on. It's interesting. The thing that I always find fascinating is where's that line between the need or, you'll, you'll tell me, obviously, that strong felt sense that something's amiss, in a sense, in your identity, and the, the doctrine of no self. And that experience of, let's say, unselfing ourselves or uncoupling from our own personal narratives. How does that fit together for you? And how do you see that fitting together in this world of social justice? I don't know if I'm clear there. Was I being clear? No, this is very clear. I, this is an issue that I've I've thought a lot about and written about too. Um, basically, I, I feel like I was born this way. Basically, in terms of like, I've always been transgender. I, when I was like four, six years old, I really had the sense that I was not a girl and I was not a boy either. I was kind of neither and sort of in between. And right, it's like did a lot of throughout my life exploring gender, exploring transgender and queer identities, and realize that like put, trying on all, on all sorts of labels trying to label my particular kind of gender expression and basically nothing sticks. Like every time I come up with a label that I think works for me, then it just doesn't work anymore. And so I go on to the next label and the next label and the next label. And then I, that whole process told me that basically gender is socially constructed. There is no such thing as gender, really. Our whole identities are socially constructed. And so that's how I interpret non-self for today. Um, in, in a contemporary context, in terms of social justice, to understand that uh, that people's identities are socially constructed, although and that people's situations are socially constructed, that their relative advantage or disadvantage is socially constructed, and it's it's socially constructed in a sort of web of power relations. Uh, to, to quote Foucault that precede us and we, we're sort of born into this set of power relations and we sort of have to cope with them and there's but but there's way we're not powerless though if staying with Foucault uh, we're not powerless in these situations we can actually speak back to systems of oppression and we can actually change them for ourselves and for other people but yeah this I think personally myself that I understood anatta or non-self as almost entirely from the perspective of being transgender, because I realized there really is no fixed self. There really is no fixed self. It's just they're just habits and ways of behaving and performing gender that we sort of get used to and we think that that's really who we are, but actually it's not. And it can be changed at any time. I have a slight problem with absolutes. And uh, I think I can't get on board with the idea that sexuality is completely socially constructed. I would tend to think that it's going to be a combination of the two. You know, I think. Yeah, well, yeah. like I said, I felt like I was born transgender. So, you know, but I, I, in other words, I was born into this set of situations where I didn't really fit into either the way gender is constructed, right? Boy or girl. I just didn't fit into either of them, right? So I've had to struggle with this all my life. So it made me very aware of the fact of 
how people perform gender, how people learn gender, how people do gender. It's conditioning, social, con- largely social conditioning. But I don't deny the fact that I was sort of kind of like born with this particular face and shape and way of yeah. being that doesn't fit the system, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, I tend to see um, all of these sort of dichotomies on, on as a spectrum which may speak to my own ignorance. <laughs> I, I find that the paradox of life quite fascinating in the sense that if you, if you buy into Buddhism to some degree, you are dealing with the, you know, the phenomena or the reality or the truth of no self. And yet there's this wonderful scenario in which we find ourselves embodied and there is a certain degree of uniqueness to our own physical manifestation. It seems to call forth, in a sense, a desire for expression. Yeah? And... In that sense, it's fascinating that line between what we're compelled to do and express and how much of that is driven by the finitude or the demands and shapes and flavors of the world we're born into and our own family and so forth. So I find it, I find, you know, I find it mm. fascinating that mm. people are outside, you know, the, the fixed boundaries of male and female. I think it's, I think it's wonderful. <laughs> I think it also brings up a point about Buddhist Dharma in general, like w- whether it's dependent origination or emptiness or non-self. Like you said in your last uh, podcast, it was like people go directly from the individual experience to the universal, right? And they kind of skip everything in between. Well, I'm all about the in-between. And I think there are, are ways of interpreting emptiness, for instance, that there are uh, – so the traditional Tibetan yeah. teaching is that there are 18 forms of emptiness. And in some cases, I've seen 32 forms of emptiness. What are they, right? They're specifications, of emptiness. There are conditions of emptiness that you can find under certain conditions and certain objects or processes or reality, right? So there's all this other in-between stuff, and that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in finding definitions of emptiness and non-self that are at the intermediate level. Non-self itself is socially constructed, as changeable, as processed, all kinds of ways of looking at emptiness, not not just in the absolute sense of the absolute void, but in the intermediate sense of like process, flow, no fixed nature, seeing through institutions of power, right? I mean, that's another, one of the uh, series I've had in my blog is this whole idea of emptiness as seeing, seeing through institutions of power, seeing that they're not that powerful, that they're not so solid, okay, that they are also socially constructed and they're on our consent to their having power over us, that we can see through these institutions, we can see the emptiness of these social institutions, and we can we can see that they're changeable and that we can change them. Okay, so I'm interested in all those reinterpreting the Dharma in those ways. It's kind of looking at all the in between stuff that it really has broader social implications. Uh, I've just got one more question for you. So, what's next for you? How are you going to continue with your activism? And your relationship with Buddhism. What's what? What are the priorities? What are you interested in? Just been selected to be on the board of directors of Buddhist Peace Fellowship. So that's going to be my main focus from now on. I think they're a really powerful organization, and I really want to support their mission and help expand expand their mission. I'm going to continue to write on social engagement in Buddhism. I'm really interested in social theory combining social theory and, and dharma uh, in the way that David Loy and others have uh, started to do, but there's just so much more that has to be done um, in terms of to help ground our practice, both the practice of engaged Buddhism, social theory that's tied to empirical reality and also tied to Buddhist dharma, bringing them together to really inform and support our, the practice of engaged Buddhism. And I'm also going to continue my main focus in terms of my own activism is climate justice, because I think that's absolutely the most critical issue that we face. Thank you for coming on, Sean. It was good to talk. Yep. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. And best of luck with all your work. We'll, uh, we'll put links to your work in the show notes.